sorry to trouble you. Let me show you this picture. Probably make you think differently. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, stamp your feet. The truth is, of course, a lot of the time we're not happy and we don't know how to express it and no one's really interested. And this, of course, is a picture of Caroline Flack, who just yesterday in East London, in her flat, took her own life. The winner of Strictly Come Dancing, I'm not a big fan, but my wife is. Um, the presenter of Love Island, which I've never watched in my life. Somebody who I've never met, but at the age of 40, she chose to take her life because of the pressure that was building on her and around her. Really early this morning, I was going to show you this picture. I put this into um, the presentation for this talk um, a bit earlier. And um, actually last night. And uh, so this morning I got up and I was kind of reshuffling the um, old deck of cards, i.e. the uh, PowerPoint. And in the middle of it, it must have been about seven o'clock, I chose to, um, it, it got me thinking, so I chose to send a tweet and within the, f I'll show it to you, within the first hour, um, it had been, uh, whatever it is, um, retweeted or whatever by lots and lots and lots and lots of people. And the BBC even rang me up to talk to me about my tweet. And then I uh, uh, did a long 20-minute interview for them about mental health this morning. So that's what I sent this morning. It's got a spelling mistake in it. Actually, I think I ran out of characters, right? <laughs> Today, we'll all witness a public outpouring of grief over the tragic death of Caroline Flack from the very same media sources who over recent weeks have hounded her and made her life unbearable, the same as they did for Diana and Meghan. And I could have added Harry, but there weren't the characters. Our culture of gossiping and of bullying celebrities has to stop. But of course, it's not, just it's not just celebrities, is it? It's everyone. It's everyone, and it's social media, and it's, you know, Dave jokes, uh, jokes about the fact that I'm regularly called the Antichrist or the son of Satan or worse on, the, on social media. Um, it's a strange thing, isn't it? That we live in this culture where we've forgotten to value other human beings. And I know that Caroline's story isn't just about the media, but it's about a vulnerable person. And it's about a vulnerable person in a difficult situation, as I think everybody knew, really. And when the vulnerability is raised, you need protective features, you could call good things, to happen into your life to create a sense of balance and stability. But when life is chaos and turmoil and there's no protection, then you get lost. And that's what Jill was talking about last Sunday. About she was talking about therapeutic communities. So if you haven't uh, watched or listened to uh, what Jill was talking about, do that. Um, let me t uh, tell you a story. It's a very quick one and it's a true one and it's of someone I know. She's 35, she's a mum, she's got seven kids, seven kids by five different dads. All of her kids are known to social services and police. 
all of her kids are regularly excluded from school and are taking up police and NHS time. She lives on benefits and hasn't done a day's work for pay whilst she's been an adult. What's your impression? Don't tell me. What's your impression of that woman? Seven kids, five different dads, <coughs> living off benefits, no work, no discipline, kids costing the police a fortune. Let me tell you another story of someone I know. She's a girl of four who began to be ritually abused and regularly raped by her father from the age of four onwards. She was raped on this basis all the time until the authorities, social services, the statutory services, the police, the NHS finally woke up to it, the school. And at the age of 15, she was taken into foster care and then moved for diff between different homes. What do you think? What's the emotion that's conjured up by that story? Let me tell you something. The first story and the sa second story are the same person. The four-year-old girl that was regularly uh, raped by her father over an 11-year period before going into foster caring is the 35-year-old woman who has seven kids by five different fathers and is on benefits and can't work. And once you connect the two stories together, you see something. And you see that we're all so easily, there's something within us that pulls us to the bad story about a person because we don't stop to take on board their circumstances. So this, um, this session is the third in a series of four, as you know, that runs through February called Lessons in Love. Uh, uh, transforming our stories reaching our potential. How is that lady that I've told you about going to ever be free and live in a different narrative, a different story, just as uh, Kate was um, uh, saying just then? Why couldn't Caroline Flack set herself free of the demons that haunted her? And why did it end so tragically last night and why will you now throughout today and tomorrow listen to an, a never-ending commentary by the very people who stuck the stuff out to grind her into the dirt in the first place today part three we're talking about jesus statement the truth will set you free confronting our demons how to confront our demons it's not just our kids' songs, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. A actually, it's a brilliant song, of course, and everybody loved it, and everybody joined in, and I don't want to make you feel bad and traumatized for a moment that you did. It's a wonderful song. I sing it with and to my grandchildren, etc., etc. It's a song I've sung all my life. It's just that it's part of life, isn't it? It's part of life. It's part of a language to describe an emotion but it shouldn't ever become a straitjacket into which we're pushed. Here's some words 
by a friend of mine, actually. His name's Martin Smith. You've sung this song, I'm sure, in song. I'm happy to be in the truth, and I will daily lift my hands, for I will always sing of when your love come down. I can sing of your love forever. I can sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. I could sing of your love forever. And the truth, of course, is, and this is no slight on, on Martin, who wrote these great words, Martin Smith. As Martin, if he was stood here, would say, the problem is 60% of the people who ever sing those words aren't there. They're mouthing the words because it's a song we've been given to sing, but we're not in that place. And as Jill was saying last week, uh, we need to, we, our church, our church, churches need to be, should be therapeutic communities where I'm known for who I am. And I can come and tell you how I feel instead of chirp along with everybody else. This is a strange thing about ours, the state of our Christianity and our churches and our world because it's not how it was for the Hebrews. This is a psalm that was written by David. We're good, we've got quite good at talking a little bit about lament after the fact, after it's disappeared. When it's all fine again, we can say, and, and in the troubled times, you were with me, Lord. But this is David. As a deer, this is our Bible reading, as a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night, I only have tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshippers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. Why am I so discouraged then? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now, I'm deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. Even from the distant Mount Hormon, the source of the Jordan, from the land of Mount Mitzah, I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me, drowning me. But each day, the Lord pours his unfailing love on me. David's realizing that as well. And through each night, I sing his songs, praying to God, who gives me life. Oh God, my rock, I cry. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones, they scoff. Where is this God of yours? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my saviour and my God. Do you see there's a raw honesty that's coming from a different place to the songs and lyrics we can muster for most of the time? We can talk about threat and we can talk about trauma and anxiety and depression and fear when it's past, when we're back to, I want to sing of your love forever. 
but the Hebrew Bible, which we've misnamed the Old Testament, but the Hebrew Bible is a source of a much more raw honesty. And truly, that's not the show psalm on it. You know, there's just endless texts in the Psalms and in the prophets, etc., of lament, of mourning. After all, this people, Israel, from whom we get the Hebrew Bible, these are the people who spent 400 years in slavery, being whipped and beaten and murdered and abused and pillaged. And then they escape across a giant trek through a desert which takes two generations for them to get there. And all of the suffering of that, then they inherit the land and then they find it's taken from them. It's whipped away from them and now they're back in Babylon. How can you sing God's songs in this strange, awful, oppressive land? And then they make it back to uh, Israel and Jerusalem's rebuilt. But the Greeks arrive and tread them into the dirt. And then the Romans pillage them and tread them into the dirt. And then they try to uh, create an uprising against all of that. But what happens is the Romans truck into town and smash Jerusalem stone by stone and eventually destroy the whole land altogether. And they're thrown back into exile, which we call the diaspora, around the world. And it's not until 1948 that they finally get a country. And now we know all of the political troubles to do with that as so many people just want a home but can't listen to each other. Do you know, the other week I was asked, to, I, and I, I was asked by uh, Nathan, so I spoke uh, about, you know, what, uh, about suffering and is God sovereign? Is, he, is God in charge all the time? Do you, do you remember some of you were here uh, for then? And summing it up, you should listen to that um, podcast or whether, whatever. What I believe, uh, the theology, actually the technical term is theodicy. A theodicy is a theology of why stuff, crap happens. That's just it. Shit happens. That's my theology. Crap happens. Stuff goes wrong in our lives. So if we have a theology and a hymnology that doesn't take that on board, then we're conning ourselves and when we most need truth. And when people most need community, it's not there for them. Stephen King said this, if a fear cannot be articulated, it cannot be conquered. How many of you have threat, trauma, anxiety? And it's round and round, but you just can't give language to it. Of course, in the, um, uh, uh, the work that I do, in Oasis with our schools around the country and, um, and new developments uh, for us now with, as we get prepared to set up what I hate calling a youth prison, but you know what, a secure school, when you say secure school, no one knows what you mean. As we get up to run that um, and working hard on, on that all the time, I understand again, as I sat in youth prisons, secure um, young people's colleges or homes, you know, they're there because they've been sentenced, they can't go home. Um, as I've sat in these last months chatting, talking with so many people, you realise that trauma takes a long time to unpack. 
as I would have said before in the first one of this series, the question is never for anyone, what's wrong with you? What have you done wrong? It's what's happened to you. What's happened to you? But of course, when you say what's happened to you, people can't articulate that. It takes months, years to be able to slowly come to a place where you find the words for what's going wrong and broken and how you've been hurt. And we call the impact of all this crap in people's, our lives, in other people's lives, we call it trauma. And you've heard of this phrase, haven't you? Title, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. They call it PTSD. And people say, I've got PTSD. I'm not sure you have. And then other people's, you know, because I mix a lot with um, doctors of psychology, talk about complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It's complex. It's not just one event. It's complex. It's developmental. This, this girl's been raped systematically and abused by her father over 11 years. It's complex. We call them ACEs. Some of you will know that and some of you won't. ACE is one of those new kind of fancy things that people talk about, and they talk about how many ACEs a child has had. Uh, what what uh, ACE stands for is adverse childhood experience. It's just a bit of latest lingo. A bit like actually trauma-informed. You know, we have because uh, I work in this world, everything has to be trauma-informed, and I joked with um, the the leading guy who we're going to get to come and speak to us in the uh, NHS, he's their lead on youth mental health. I was talking to him this week and I said, the thing about trauma-informed, it used to be called investors in people. We're all kind of always, you know, investors in people, everybody used to get that plaque and put it outside because we've been accredited as an investor in people. We still treat our staff like worms, but we've We've got that thing. That's all trauma-informed actually is, investing in people. Investing in people. Complex trauma dis uh, uh, disorder. You see all these disorders? People get told they have. I think we should talk about this if we're going to be technical. Post-terrible event, traumatic event, anxiety-inducing event or events, stress, disorientation. I'm not disordered, I'm disorientated. Don't you know that when traumatic stuff happens to you, it takes away your ability to think straight? Does, do, do you know, when something shocking happens, you, your, your focus narrows. It's because your brain's doing other things to try and control that stress at that moment, and you're able, unable to think widely. Have you noticed that? Is it just me? You're all going, no, not me. I'm always totally stable. I don't believe you. I know darn well that when stuff goes wrong in your life, at that moment, you make stupid decisions. We make unwise decisions because somehow we lack clarity in that moment. We're muddled. And the more complex someone's stress is, the more that disorientation goes on and on and on and on. You're stuck in it. You can't get out of it. It changes our perceptions. It changes what we think about. It even changes our ability to think clearly. 
And if you go back to Caroline Flack's tragic story of yesterday, when she got up yesterday morning, to her, at that moment, because of her ability to think has shrunk, and the trauma she's in, because it's complex, it's like a fog, she's submerged, the waves are washing over her, she's drowning in this sea of anxiety, and she can't feel a way out. And suicide, of course, is simply this. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Because in the fog of the moment, you just cannot see your way out. And you can't climb out of the hole. Which is why what Jill was saying last week is so important about developing a therapeutic community, which is really another word for a church when it's doing its job and it's being its best. Well, over the uh, last few years, we've learned lots about human brains. Here is actually an, a, um, a scan, of real picture, a scan of a human brain in the skull. There it is. And remember last week, Jill did that thing with uh, her hands. Did you, well, I'll do it again just for those of you who weren't there. If you hold up your hand like that and you tuck your thumb in and go like that, oh, oh do that, that's it, go like that. Okay, so what happens is this bit is your brain stem. This bit in the middle there, it's, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Jill mentioned it last week. It's called your limbic center. And this bit over the top, see this is your head, your neck, your brain stem, your limbic center in there, uh, a system actually. And then over the top, this is called your cortex. And your limbic center is where all your emotions are exploding the whole time and your cortex over the top is your management center for your emotions to bring them in to, to regulate them do, do you see just do, do, do you know the management sits up there the emotions are exploding in there because uh, of all your senses all the stuff that's happening to you and being said to you and what you just saw across the road and what you heard and all the rest of it but your cortex manages you and calms you and helps you make rational decisions. The problem is that this cortex is something we develop over time. So if you're a parent of a little child, you know, one minute they're really happy, you know, two of my little grandsons came to see me yesterday, one minute, really, really, really happy. Next minute, ah, the world's terrible. Next minute, whoa, shall we play? Next minute, ah, do you see? Now that's not because I got bad grandsons at all. It's because that's what two-year-olds do, because their cortex actually hasn't developed yet. So they can't self-regulate, because that's what that bit management center, top bit of your brain does. So they need external regulation. They need a mum to pick them up and go there, 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 and calm them. They need someone to sit with them and calm them through language, or when they're down, to help them overcome that. It's external regulation as your cortex grows, so in the end, you can do it for yourself. And there you go, that's, a, that's the actual picture of someone's head. There it is, I got this off the internet. You see the red zone, it's called, the red brain, the limbic uh, system, that's what Jill was talking about. It's red because it's, it's like a nuclear reactor the whole time, reacting to this, reacting to that, reacting to something else. 
And the cortex, human beings have more cortex than any other mammal, sits over the top. Calm, calm, chill, chill. That's, they, uh, that's, that's how it is. Now, in the red zone, that limbic system, we're just going to look at something. This is the technical bit. It's called the amygdala. That's how you say that word, the amygdala. It's a little bit in the limbic system. So there it is, the limbic system, the red zone, the explosive area. The amygdala, we're going to look at. There are other little bits in there, but that's what, this is what it all looks like. And if you look at the word at the bottom, can you see amygdala? And it's pointing to that kind of little blue bulb. The, the, all the, the um, brownish, light brownish matter, uh, uh, this is all over the top is your cortex, but there is your amygdala, and you can see what it does. You see it says amygdala, aggression, flight, and fear, flight. So what it does is it's sensing, your, your, your limbic center is linked to your ears, and it's linked to your eyes, you can see it, and it's linked to your nose, for instance, linked to your skin as well. So it's receiving all these senses from you all the time, and the amygdala bit, is kind of reacting to what's going on ar around you. Does that make sense? Reacting. And like I've said, if that self-regulation, the rest of the brain isn't working, hasn't developed, or isn't given time to react, what eventually can happen is it, your cortex, gets overwhelmed and it goes offline altogether. I was talking, I was, um, talking to a bunch of vicars, actually, um, last week, um, and they'd asked me to talk about pastoral theology and trauma. So I do this morning for them, from Worcester. And so I do this morning for them, and then uh, a, a lovely uh, uh, man who was a vicar come, came up to me and he told me about his, his um, teenage, teenage, teenage girl and how she had a brain injury when she was eight. And ever since then, she, she said, he said, she just flips all the time. She was stable before because she developed cortex C and it, I guess that's what happened. Um, and I said, oh yeah, yeah, she flips all the time. He said, she flips all the time, we don't know what to do. And I said, oh, it's easy for me to say, but I said, just wait 40 to 45 minutes. It's between 40 and 45 minutes and then she'd be calm again. And he looked at me <laughs> and he said, I think she thought it was a word from God. You know, he kind of like, he said, how did you know that? How, how did you know it's always 40 minutes? I said, well, I didn't, except I know that's the time that it takes when your cortex has been overwhelmed. So you see, when you say to a kid, you're naughty, stand outside, be quiet in the corridor. That's no good. What they need is someone to go sit with them and calm, calm, calm. Go for a walk, in our case, over to the farm. That's what it's there for. To look at some plants. To get out and find that equilibrium again. So, what I'm saying is that there is hope because our brains are plastic. I don't want anyone to think you're kind of, oh, this is, these things have happened to me and I'm stuck there. We know darn well 
In the 1990s, you know, halfway through, they invented the MRI scanner, and the MRI scanner is what that uh, picture came through, but the MRI scanner means that we can actually see how external regulation of care, you can watch it on a scanner, the calming impact it has on a brain. We can see a brain changing. We can see a, brain's char a child's brain growing and connecting as it's spoken to and nurtured and cuddled and shown real love that never gives up. The problem is that unless we address our stories, as David did in that psalm, Unless we learn to address our stories, which is painful. In the first week when we talked, I said, trauma that you don't deal with will deal with you. It will ongoingly deal with you until you deal with it. But the learning and coming to the place where you can deal with it is hard. And sometimes you can't even get there to that place. But it's so important. It's so important. Because until that point, there's no option but to self-medicate. And we self-medicate on everything from, well, substitutes for love, substitutes for feeling secure. We self-medicate on everything from chocolate and fat and alcohol to smoking, shopping and sugar, to MDA, to crystal meth. The substitutes for feeling secure are numerous. If a fear cannot be articulated, it cannot be conquered. So the question is, how do we articulate? How do we? How do we reach the place where when our amygdala, you saw it there, which is sensing flight or fight, uh, someone said, I think it's a great, a great way of thinking about it, it's like the brain smoke detector. Do you know when you've got a smoke detector in the kitchen and, you, fr uh, and you, you do bacon butties or something like that, it always goes off, doesn't it? You know, Because the smoke detector is really sensitive and it will sound the alert, sound the alarm before you want it to half the time. The amygdala in your brain does exactly that. It's being bombarded by your senses and it's sounding the alert, sound the alert, turn the alarm on, I sniff a bit of smoke. And your cortex is saying, there, 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 calm. Don't hit him, smile at him. Don't swear at her. Ask her how her day's been which is in a point aside, which we talk about more next week, our trauma traumatizes others. That's the problem, isn't it? Do you know? So you can know all that. I'm, you know, I know a lot of teachers, obviously. You can know all of this stuff, but this kid is out of control. It's Friday. It's the Friday before half term. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. You're tired. It's been a long term. And stuff's going on in your life. And this kid who you've got to come out loving just slams the door and you react out of your trauma because one person's trauma traumatizes or triggers the amygdala and the uh, trauma in another person. So we've got to just learn to talk about this because we're all in this. You know, it's sometimes said, isn't it? And then I'd like to introduce you to Claire, um, uh, who sat there. It's sometimes said that one in four people suffers mental health issues. Have you heard that? Have you heard things like that? This is rot. 
just not true. Once you stop and think about it, I went to America over Christmas, oh, well, not over Christmas, in the new year, and really foolishly stayed with um, my brother, well, no, not, I said really foolish. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong order of the sentence there. Really foolishly stayed with my brother-in-law. No, <laughs> I was, it was great to stay with my brother-in-law and his wife, and it really was, it was great, but really foolishly, because they live in Boston, it had been snowing, but they cleared the roads, really foolishly went out running, and on the ice, stroke snow, stroke not knowing where I was going, stroke not looking where I was going, tripped down a pothole, which twisted seriously my ankle, this ankle, which I've broken three times in the past, which has meant that I've not really gone running since January the 2nd when this terrible thing happened. I've not gone running. So this week I had to go for a medical, because every now and then I have to do a medical for work, you know, because they want to check out, you know, if they, if, well actually, I think Oasis has got this thing where in any year that I die they get a load of money, so they're going, yeah, you know, kind of gets them out, of, it gets Oasis out of the in-year deficit. But there you go, if I finally peg it. So, um, so, so they're checking up to find out, you know, everybody's finding out how much they've got to pay for, for you know, to, to get the payout when I finally, you know. And so, so this week, I had to go on a running machine, uh, you know, because they put all that stuff on you, you know, and you've got to go on this running machine. I had to go on a, run, a treadmill, running machine, and I wanted to say to the guy, I'm totally unfit. I haven't been running for six weeks. I haven't done any exercise for six weeks. God, it's not fair. You shouldn't put me on this running machine now. You should let my ankle get better, and then I could do six weeks running, and I'll come back. But I couldn't, so I just had to go on the running machine, and it had all these dull readings, you know, about how unfit I am, I'm sure. The point is this. My physical health goes up and down, as yours does, all of us. You're not stable. None of us are stable in terms of physical health. We pick up a virus. We get a cold. You shouldn't talk about picking up viruses right now, should you? But we get a cold. We, I fall over. I can't run. You can't get fit. You were planning to go to the gym. It's pouring down with rain or whatever. You go to a series of meals with your work, and they're all kind of full of carbohydrate and sugar and not what you'd normally eat. You didn't get enough fruit. This way, all that kind of stuff. Our physical health goes up and down. Do you agree? Every one of us? Is there anyone here who thinks their physical health is absolutely stable? No, of course not. We all have mental health as we all have physical health. And it goes up and down. It's not one in four people. It's me. It's me. Um, I was filling in that, that um, um, heart, um, you know, that um, Kate gave us. And I... I, um, I wrote some things on mine up there. And then, Kate, you asked another question. You said, who do you find it hardest to love? Didn't you? Something like that. Well, clearly, the people you find it hardest to love are the people that are closest to you, isn't it? It's easy to love people that you knock into in the coffee shop. Do you know, it's the person you live with that it's hardest to always interpret your love to, isn't it? You know, so that's it, isn't it? That's it. Why is that? Because sometimes we're tired and sometimes bad stuff's happened in our day and someone else has been onto us. And you get home and 64,000 people, it seems, have been telling you where to go, what to say, what to write, fill this email in, do this, do this piece of work, and you're drowning in a sea of all of this stuff. So you get home and you're not your best self. Because we all save our worst behavior for indoors. Because we all have mental health curves. 
That's the point. So this isn't about stigma. It's about how we all manage our limbic system, our explosive red zone, and live in wholeness and get set free from the demons that have got in there and stick there and won't go away. Because that's another thing about your limbic center. It hangs on to stress and then it relives it. I said I'm going to introduce Claire. Let me tell you, as I do, that this week I was with a refugee foundation. Uh, they bring refugees from Iraq. And I was down at near one of where one of our schools uh, is. And I was talking to the director of this. And they've taken on um, uh, 25 people who've come from Iraq, doing fantastic work. And uh, he said, the incredible thing is this. He said, he said, when a helicopter goes overhead, you know, a police helicopter or a media one or some, you know, some business person on their way to wherever, whenever a helicopter flies overhead, he's noticed this, it happens to them all. He said, but they've been doing this for some years. He said, every Iraqi that I know, as soon as they hear a helicopter, you can see this look of fear in their eyes. And what they'll do is they get themselves up against a wall in a corner. It's totally involuntary. Every time they hear a helicopter, they get up in a corner against walls and they cower in the corner and cover their head. Because for years, for every single one of them, the sound of a helicopter meant a barrel bomb. Trauma gets into your limbic center and you relive it. And every time, you may be living in Maidstone, as some of them are, but every time you hear a helicopter, it's not that you're remembering, it's that you're back there and it's happening all again. And some of us live in deep, complex trauma from stuff that's happened and we think we've left it behind, but every now and then it's triggered. So the question is, how do we articulate and how do we move on? And I'd like Claire, who's a psychologist, to come and join us. Give Claire a round of applause. Is this on? Yeah, you can hear us, can't you? Can Claire? Yeah, you're on. Hello? Yeah, good. So, Claire, you're a psychologist. Um, tell us just briefly what, a what kind of psychology you do. Okay. Um, so, I'm a clinical psychologist, and um, I've worked in four children's mental health teams, um, two adult mental health teams, uh, teams for people with learning disabilities and older adults. But I was just saying that mental health isn't a thing that a psychologist, oh, you know, these people have got mental health issues or they've got mental health. What a strange phrase that is in itself, isn't it? We all have health, physical and mental and emotional and social. So aside from being a psychologist, you're a person. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And so this just gives you a better understanding of yourself. Yeah, so um, as well as being a psychologist, I also had a pretty um, over-the-top smoke detector 
in my limbic system <laughs> for about 20 years in relation to my physical health because I've had quite a complex physical health history and seven surgeries um, and lots of trauma around that. And so I, what I've been saying this morning is a fear that can't be articulated, stress, trauma, um, worry, threat that can't be articulated can never be conquered. Um, the very fact that you can sit there and say, well, you know, these physical things happened to me and they screwed me up, you know, in terms of my mental health is saying something in itself. How do we, me, us all, go on the journey to being able to articulate our struggles? Um, I think the most important thing is to be kind to yourself and that's something that I've had to learn myself. A lot of the time I've been... Um, quite unkind to myself and thinking about the fact that my body is, is a lot better than my mind was for a long time. Uh, but that's okay because, like you've been saying, your physical health fluctuates just like your mental health does. I think um, when you're ready, it can be really essential to um, take yourself to a therapist, a specialist, who can help you to articulate some of these kind of churning fears that you spoke about. So I know that for me, my anxiety around health was that kind of panic button, panic button constantly. And um, I've been seeing a psychologist for a while now who has helped me to put that into words. So to bring it from the part of my brain that doesn't have language, where it's stored, to the part of my brain, the cortex, that does have um, some language and some regulation. And um, yeah, she told me on Friday actually that she thinks we're ready to finish the work now. So um, I'm quite pr pleased with that because um, I can manage my health and relate to my health in a way that I just never would have been able to, or hadn't been able to for 20 years. Why do you think that we are so scared to talk about mental health, our mental health? I think there's um, a huge stigma around it. I think certainly as a clinical psychologist, um, talking about my mental health was something I didn't like doing for a long time. Now I think and um, I firmly come to believe that it makes me a better psychologist to understand what it's like to have experienced those things. I think also it's seen in society as a sign of weakness in a way that physical health problems just aren't. Um, and it really isn't that. And in fact, a big piece of the work that I've been doing with my therapist is around understanding just how much strength it's taken me and how much strength I have to be able to get to where I am with the physical health issues that I've experienced. I remember a few years ago as it used to emerge that people in Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera, in the States generally, were seeing therapists. People used to go, oh, Americans always trying to sort themselves out. We seem to be slowly catching up with the fact that actually we, we all do need to sort this stuff out. Yeah, I think um, it's easy to pathologize things and to think that people who go to therapists are the people who are really messed up and the rest of us are just slightly messed up and we can manage on our own. It's not really like that. Therapists are actually normal people as well. Um, as I think I once heard it during my psychology training that psychologists have the highest rate of needle phobia of any group of people. Um, so we're all just normal people and um, there is no normal. So <laughs> it's important, I think, for everyone to feel free to just go to be with a person who's learned about how some of these systems in the brain and um, psychological and social factors influence mental health. And just be a person with another person and allow yourself that space to um, be able to process what's happened to you and to be able to tell your story as part of your healing. Mm. I, I f find um, sometimes I'm, I'm talking with someone who leaves a relationship and it's because of all the flaws in their partner. 
but I'm aware that actually what's going on is as much to do with their unarticulated, ununderstood sense of trauma, uh, never visited, never inspected, never unearthed. So this person is speaking, acting out of their trauma, but they can only see the fault in the other. So this relationship comes to an end, and then they stroll straight into another relationship, which is bound to go wrong because they've imported all their own rubbish into the second one. So I guess that that exploring ourselves is an important thing. It's an important thing, and it's also something which I'd really like to see normalized and celebrated. Um, Actually, I would rather be somebody who um, has explored myself and dealt with my demons. Um, I, we could talk in a minute about um, whether therapists have to be. Yeah, uh, well, Christian. I was just going to say that. So then the thing is, as people got used, it's okay to see a counsellor, and there's been a growth in counselling courses, and um, Christian colleges ex- uh, offer degrees in Christian counselling. So I. Uh, I was talking to someone very recently, I've heard this many times through the years, who, who was shocked and horrified that I might, uh, they were talking about the work we were doing, they were shocked and horrified that I might recommend anybody go to anyone other than a born-again, fully paid-up uh, evangelical counsellor. Have, have you had that? Yeah, this is the only part that I have a list in response to, oh. <laughs> because... <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, so we, um, my husband and I came from a um, New Frontiers church in a previous life. It's all right. We are through it now. Um, <laughs> there are many good things about <laughs> New Frontiers. <laughs> and um, we experienced um, quite a negative attitude, particularly to my profession um, and to mental health, and certainly a separation between um, the spiritual and the secular, uh, particularly talking about um, a friend of mine, so I think my friend has experienced it more, so I have a friend who's been through significant childhood trauma, like you were talking about, and wanted to seek um, support from adult mental health services, but she was advised um, by that church not to do so, um, because it would be, uh, it's not necessary, these are her words, obviously, I haven't heard this firsthand, but it's not necessary to talk about your issues, and um, all that's necessary is to take them to the cross and repent of what you've been through. Um, so, you know, obviously there are good things about New Frontiers. Um, that's the experience that I think can, that sort of experience can be very damaging. Mm. So what's your advice to, to us? To, to me? If I'm sitting here and I know that the life's being sucked out of me, I don't feel like I'm really alive. I feel numb. I feel pushed down. And I know there are things that trigger experiences from the past that just make me shake. What should I do? Um, I think the first thing is just to hear the message that things will get better. A big part of um, the reason that I'm so much better now is not just my therapist, but my amazing husband, Dan, who a lot of you know. He's been through his own trauma therapy as well. Um, and so, for not from being married to me, <laughs> from, from something else. <laughs> um, and... 
uh, that's been a really amazing experience for him. And one of the things he kept saying to me was, this is only temporary, this will get better. So if you are in that place right now, the main thing I just want you to hold on to is, this is only temporary. Um, if you do feel in the place where you're ready to talk about this or to start to process it or you need to, then I suggest that you um, go to your GP, talk to your GP. There's also a link. Is that up? Yeah. Uh, next slide. Thank you. Um, there's also a link there to um, the NHS Psychological Therapies Finder page. So if you um, type in your postcode, it will tell you what psychological therapy services, talking therapies are available. Um, just in terms of what kind of therapist to look for, there are so many reasons, in my opinion, why it does not have to be and why it's often better for it not to be a born-again, paid-up, um, evangelical Christian. My therapist, I don't actually know what her spiritual beliefs are because our connection is at such a level that it doesn't matter. I do know that she's not um, an ev conservative evangelical because we've talked about how those kind of beliefs have damaged me in the past. But um, Dan talks about his healing from his trauma being through his therapy with a psychologist who's not a Christian and mine isn't either. And I think that has been one of the most restorative things, that they don't have a black and white way of thinking. I'm not saying all Christians do. And also let me say that I did see one Christian counselor who was really great and really loving and warm, and I saw her for years. We reached a point where she recognized that we needed to go beyond her um, level of expertise to someone who specialized in the kind of issues I was dealing with. But generally, my experience of Christian counseling is that it's less regulated than um, some particular professions like clinical psychology and counseling. Um, and also that it's it can end up instilling in you an idea that your problems come from spiritual issues. God has imposed this on you, or if you just believe in God more strongly, it will go away, that sort of thing. Those things you need to be liberated from, guys, and that's um, certainly my experience. Claire, thank you very much. Thank you for being honest. Give Claire a round of applause. In a, in a moment, we're going to finish, and we're going to finish by singing uh, this song together. Um, let me tell you the story of how um, the hymn that I'm going to read to you and then we're going to sing was written. It was written in uh, 1882, and it was written by a man called George Matheson. This is what he says about writing this hymn, because he'd learned to deal with trauma, to face it. He says, my hymn was composed in the manse uh, of my parish in Scotland. He, he worked in Edinburgh as a vicar on the evening of June the 6th, 1882. I was there at that time alone. It was the day of my sister's marriage. And the rest of my family was staying overnight in a hotel. Something had happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression of it being dictated to me by some inward voice rather than me working it out for myself. I'm quite sure that the whole work was completed in five minutes or less and equally sure that it never received from my hands any retouching or correction. I've got no natural rhythm. All other verses I've written are manufactured articles. 
This came like a dayspring from on high. I've never once been able to gain, again, the same fervor or fluency in verse. The mental trauma that he spoke, he says, it was the day of my sister's marriage and the rest of the family was staying uh, in a hotel. Um, something had happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. In actual fact, uh, because of other things that others wrote about George Matheson and he wrote about himself later, we know exactly what that thing was. At the age of five, he began going blind. He went to university uh, in Glasgow and then he went on and he studied theology, Greek, Hebrew, Latin. He became a really successful church leader in the heart of Glasgow. But um, at the age of 24, he was told he would go blind and he'd go blind in the next uh, couple of years. He was engaged to be married. He told his fiancée what was going to happen to him. She said, I can't spend the rest of my life married to a blind man. And she left him. His sight left him. His fiancée left him. And on the evening of his sister being married in the same, uh, same city, he became overwhelmed by his sense of grief and loss. His amygdala had hung onto the trauma and it suddenly replayed the most severe mental suffering. So this man, like David, wrote a song out of trauma and we're going to sing it. I'll read it to you first. This is what he wrote that night before his sister's wedding. O oh, love that wilt not let me go. Oh, sorry, <laughs> two lines in there you don't need. Um, o oh, love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O oh, light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain, and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. O cross, that lifts up my head. I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Words written in truth, out of trauma, learning to articulate a story. I invite you, if you choose, if you're able to stand and we're going to sing that together.